you will join me in Galatians chapter 3 this morning, we continue in our series through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians, and we find ourselves this morning in chapter 3, we will be looking at verses 23 through 29. The title of our sermon this morning is Sons of God, and our key words for our worshipers in training are slave, son, and one. I wonder if you've ever thought about what it would be like to spend your entire life as a slave. And then one day to be set free. What would it be like day after day after day to be forced to do something that you don't want to do without pay, oftentimes without adequate care, under the fear of consequence for not following through with what your master has commanded. But then one day, you're all of a sudden set free. You're liberated. You no longer answer to the person you were once enslaved to. You no longer have to carry a fear of the consequence that comes from doing what you wanted to do instead of doing what you were told. You get to make your own decisions. You, you live your own life. You provide for your own needs. What would it be like to have newfound liberty overnight after a lifetime of slavery? If you've ever read about any societies that have had slavery of any kind in its history, you see some common things among those who were freed from slavery. They were given freedom, but they, they didn't know what to do with it. For the most part, in most instances, slaves didn't have education or training other than the manual labor they performed for their masters. A lot of slaves only understood freedom to be freedom from work and not an actual freedom to do anything that they desired to do. Sometimes slaves were reluctant to ever work a job for a boss for fear that it would lead them right back into where they were before. So what ends up happening is there's a sort of confusing longing for the way things used to be. No matter how devastating, no matter how demeaning, no matter how oppressive, it's all they knew. And so for many slaves in many different contexts, freedom was just too confusing. It was was too shocking was too much because they simply didn't know what to do with it. It's the same thing that happened to the Israelites. They were an extremely oppressed people for 450 years, many generations of people. They were under the harsh authority of the the Pharaoh of Egypt. They're enslaved and, and held captive to do difficult manual labor day after day without the proper equipment and rest, all under the heavy hands of slave drivers who were a constant threat to their physical well-being, to anyone who failed to meet an impossible standard. And you probably know the story. The book of Exodus details for us the miraculous journey the Israelites made away from Egypt into the wilderness. No longer slaves of Pharaoh, but as a free people on their way to the promised land under the sovereign lordship of God. What more could they want? What more could they ask for? But as the people made it into the wilderness on their journey, it didn't take long before they began grumbling and complaining against Moses, longing once again for Egypt. Could it be that life was better in Egypt as a slave? Certainly not. There's no way that life was better in slavery, but they wanted it. They longed for it because they were uncertain. They were afraid. They lacked a sufficient trust in God and his chosen man, Moses, to lead them to their inheritance that God had promised them. Now, as Christians, I think sometimes we can look at examples like the Israelites and call their actions foolish. And say what they were longing for was senseless. It was, it's unfathomable. 
But I want us to see this morning that we oftentimes do the very same thing. For those of us who've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we are made to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And yet so often we live our lives longing for a life that looks a lot different than a life of liberation and freedom and joy. We look longingly back to a life of enslavement, a life of fear, a life of an enjoyment of all that God has promised is impossible and out of reach. And instead of understanding ourselves to be sons and daughters of God, we live under the enslavement of a a guardian which keeps us from enjoying all of the gifts of God given to those who were once slaves but are now free. This is where the Apostle Paul takes us in our text this morning as we continue looking at his argument in his letter to the Galatians. Now, in the most recent verses we've looked at, Paul has had a running commentary on the relationship between the law and the gospel and the insufficiency of the law to provide anything necessary for salvation. Specifically, last week, Paul was building on a previous argument regarding the relationship between the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants and proving that the Abrahamic covenant is a greater covenant and that the giving of the Mosaic law 430 years after the Abrahamic covenant did not annul what he had previously promised, namely that redemption came by faith, not by works of the law. Now, Paul, you will recall, is refuting all of the possible arguments of the false teaching of the Judaizers. They had infiltrated the Galatian church. They've convinced many of the believers that the means to true salvation is not only by faith in Christ, but also by adherence to the law. So Paul begins this section we're looking at this morning, continuing where we left off last week with this question of what is exactly the purpose of the law? And he shows the Galatians that their focus has been wrongly turned into a legal justification. When in reality, as Christians, they've been set free in Christ as sons of God. They've been adopted by God as his children, made one in him. But they were not living in light of their being baptized into Christ. They were living instead as those enslaved to the law. We'll look together at chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. If you're using the blue ESV Bible in the seat in front of you, you can find our text on page 974. The first thing for us to see this morning, we find in verses 23 and 24. Paul shows us that apart from Christ, man is enslaved to the law and to Satan. Let's look, beginning in verse 23. Now, before faith came... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, there's a few phrases here that are a bit difficult. We need to give them some attention if we're going to apply the text rightly. Paul begins verse 23 with these words, now before faith came, which almost sounds like he's saying there was a time before when there was no faith, but Paul is not saying that there was a time when the true people of God did not have faith. Remember, we looked several weeks ago at the faith of Abraham in the word of God. It is God who Abraham had faith in. It is Christ who Abraham had faith in. Remember, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Or another way to say that is Abraham had faith in God. So what does Paul mean here? Well, oftentimes we talk about Christianity as the faith. And I believe that's more faithful to an understanding of what Paul's saying here. The full breadth of what Christianity is, the faith of Christianity came at the dawn of the new covenant 
when Christ fulfilled all that he came to the world to fulfill. So Paul's making a comparison between the old covenant and the new covenant. And we'll see this in the context even more as we get into chapter 4 in the next few weeks. But, but when Paul says here, before faith came, it's helpful to understand this is a reference to the coming of the new covenant. So we could read verse 23 as saying, before the new covenant came in Christ, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming new covenant would be revealed. That's a faithful understanding of what this verse says and what Paul is communicating. So very quickly, I want to make sure we're on the same page. The major distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant is the very distinction that Paul has been making over and over again, namely the relationship between law and gospel. Prior to Christ's life and work as the only sufficient sacrifice for sin, all that existed was the promise that Christ would do what was promised. So while we understand that any promise of God is certainly as good as done, we have to identify that these things are worked out through time in redemptive history. So prior to the life and work of Jesus Christ in the flesh, the people believed in the Messiah to come and they trusted that he would accomplish the promise of Genesis 3.15. However, his work of law keeping, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, none of these things had yet been accomplished. So there was nothing yet that had happened to set mankind free from the penalty of sin. If Christ never came, we can argue from Paul's statement in verse 23 that we would be imprisoned under the penalty of the law. There's no escape from the law apart from Christ because as we've seen many times now in Galatians, there's no ability to live up to the standard of the law. Yes, in the Old Covenant, there was the blood of bulls and goats and rams and lambs, but all that did was roll the debt forward for another year, another year, another year, another year, over and over and over. An animal was sacrificed, the sins were rolled forward another year. And so it was for those under the Old Covenant, like like getting a, a no payment for however many years in the future credit offer. So they get this offer in the mail and it tells them, you can use this credit now, you can buy whatever you want, but you won't have to pay anything on it for four years. Now, that's a terrible thing, by the way. Don't do that. (laughs) And so the, the Israelites were racking up their sins. These things needed to be atoned for. And while they turned to the blood of animals as God commanded them, a spotless lamb, a ram, a bull, a goat, none of them were able to fully atone for their sins. It was one after the other, after the other, after the other. Gallons upon gallons upon gallons of blood was spilled from animals that their sins could be rolled forward. All of those sins were rolled onto the cross when the date of payment arrived. So the debt could either be paid in full or the penalty would be enforced. Those are the options. For those who had and have Christ as the object of their faith, the debt is paid in full. For all others, the penalty remains unpaid. And it will need to be paid everlastingly. The penalty is eternal death and torment. So verse 23, before the new covenant came, we were imprisoned under the law. And remember, we saw last week that the purpose of the law in its first use is to show us our absolute guilt before God because we are completely unable to fulfill all that God requires. And as a result, because of our sinful nature, 
When the law forbids something, the heart is stirred up all the more to transgress it all the more. And if you recall from last week, Paul told us this is actually what God intended from the law. So one who's imprisoned under the law, under a covenant of works, under the old covenant, it it is someone who cannot not sin. And any attempt to not sin entices them to sin all the more. So in this way, they're a slave to the law. It continues to hold them under the the rigid, unbending, unrelenting force. And it, it continues to scream out, you are guilty. You are condemned. You are unable to fulfill the requirements. You aren't good enough. You won't be good enough. You fail and you fail and you fail and you fail again and again and again. And if you think of it in terms of, of being enslaved to the law, you can just imagine the lashings falling out across your back over and over and over again. And perhaps for a moment you think maybe it's going to stop, but then you look to the law again and realize I can't do it and they drop again and again and again. You fail, you fail, you fail. Do you see the the nature of living under the law is living as a slave We're enslaved. We continue to be thrashed by the law. And all throughout this letter, Paul continues to say to the Galatians, why? Why do you want to live in this manner? Why do you want to continue to be enslaved? Don't you see? You're bewitched. You're not simply enslaved to the law. You're enslaved to the evil one. He wants you under the law. Remember back at the beginning of chapter 3, we saw Paul was telling him that they're looking to the law in the manner they have was them being under the influence of the demonic. He said, you're bewitched. Who has bewitched you? The devil is at work in all the details. He wants you to look to the law. He wants you to continue to look to the law for your righteousness because he knows better than you do that you cannot live up to the law's requirements and he loves to see you enslaved by it. He's the accuser of the brethren. You may break the law and try to convince yourself that it wasn't that big of a deal, but I assure you, Satan's great desire is to remind you over and over and over again. Brothers and sisters, the law of God in the hands of the evil one is a deadly weapon. It has slain many, many people. It condemns and it slays, but it never, ever saves. If you live under the crushing weight of the law, you are right where Satan wants you and you are just as much under his sway. But Paul keeps us on track to remember something else about the law. He helps us to remember that the law, although it does what it does as God has intended it, it is still good and right and perfect and holy in every way. And so there's a positive way of understanding it and what it does. Look again at verse 24. He says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, real quick, I want to admit to you that I do not like the way the ESV has translated this verse because it doesn't really communicate what it should. By far, I believe, the best English translation of this verse is the New American Standard, which says, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. If you want to make your ESV read more properly, the best thing to do is cross out the word came. So it reads, the law was our guardian until Christ, in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, you understand what that means as we press on. First, what does Paul mean when he says the law was our guardian until Christ? 
or the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. Or some of you may remember the language of the King James that uses the word schoolmaster. The person Paul has in mind here that he's referring to wasn't a teacher. It was a person who was a slave whose job was to look after a child. It was a slave who belonged to someone who was wealthy. They had children. And so this slave was appointed to watch over the children as a custodian. He was someone who would supervise the daily activities of a child between the ages of 7 and 17. He supervised the education. He was instrumental in forming habits. And he administered discipline. Oftentimes that discipline was administered quite harshly. You can imagine why. If the children were out of line, who was the master going to blame? Certainly the slave. So Paul compares the law to this tutor, this position. The law isn't a teacher. He didn't teach. He just oversaw, supervised. He's not a teacher. The tutor is not a teacher. He's a leader. And likewise, the law through its threats, through its rebukes, through its punishments, it leads us somewhere. The law displays the justice of God. It convinces us that in ourselves we are unrighteous. And in the commandments of God, just as though we were looking in a mirror, we see how far, how distant we are from true righteousness. It's a reminder to us that we have to look elsewhere for our righteousness. The law brings us down into the ground and it plows us under and under and under. And it should leave us crying out, what can I do? Where can I turn? Who can rescue me from this body of death? John Calvin writes, your weaknesses will never allow you to ascend so high as what the law requires. Nay, though you desire and strive ever so much, you will fall far short of the object. So the law is the tutor that presses us. It entreats us to seek refuge from the wrath of God and the curse of God. And it will never give you any rest until we find refuge, until we drink of living water, until we eat of the immortal bread of life. Now, think also of the ceremonial law and all that it required. For what end did sacrifices and washings serve but to keep this mind continually fixed on pollution and condemnation? When a man's uncleanliness is placed before his eyes, when the unoffending animal is held forth as an image of his own death. How can you sleep? How can you close your eyes without seeing that blood and that death and hearing the cries of the animal? How can he be anything but stirred up in that moment to cry out for deliverance? Beyond all doubt, the ceremonies accomplished their object not just by alarming and humbling the conscience, but by exciting them to some hope, some great redemption, some freedom, some liberty. It couldn't be found in what they were required to do. It left them saying, let that not be me. May it not be I who is slain like this lamb. But where do I turn? Where is my hope? Where Will my liberty come from? We will not have rest until we find that refuge. John Calvin writes, The ceremonial law, in short, was nothing else than an immense variety of exercises in which the worshipers were led by the hand to Jesus Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, apart from Christ, you are enslaved to the law. It is your tutor. It drives you continually to recognize what you are in light of what God requires.
It works to drive us further and further and deeper and deeper that we might finally say, enough already. To whom can I turn? And then and only then, at the absolute end of ourselves, do we see and know it is Christ who will rescue me. It is Christ who will set me free. I need Christ to break me free from my slavery to the law, that I might be justified by faith apart from works of the law. Friends, some of you here this morning are enslaved to the law of God because you have it in your mind's eye that you might be able to live up to some standard that is clearly emblazoned on your heart. But you know deep down that it's impossible. That's why you say things like, I'm a good person. But you know, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect, right? You know what? You're right. You're absolutely right. And that's the law of God convicting you of this very reality that you don't live up to what is required of you. Jesus said, be perfect because my Father in heaven is perfect. You don't match up. I don't match up. Not one of us matches up. And so we are condemned. But you're still thinking, yes, but I'm okay. I'm a good guy. I do the right thing. I basically keep it together. And you're right where the enemy wants you. You're right where Satan would have you be because you have no true concern for the state of your soul. And I want to warn you this morning that you may assume that what you do is based solely and completely on your deciding whether or not you think it's right or wrong. But I want to tell you this morning that what you do is by the master driving you as a slave. You cannot help but sin because you are imprisoned under the law. You are enslaved to the evil one. And apart from Christ, you have no choice. You're either under the law or you're in Christ. Those are our options. Will you repent and believe the gospel? Jesus commends it. Will you turn to Jesus Christ by faith and trust in him and rest in him? I commend him to you. If you come to Jesus in humility and repentance, he will not turn you away. Jesus is not a harsh schoolmaster. He's a loving, gentle, gracious brother and friend to those who will trust in him as their Savior and Lord. And when you do that, something amazing happens. The law has performed its duty in that way. It leads us to the very place where we see that we need to be in the only place where there is refuge. This is our second observation this morning in verses 25 through 27. We will see that in Christ, by faith, we become sons of God. Look at verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Christ has broken the chains of slavery to the Mosaic Covenant for his church. Before the new covenant in his blood, the church was under the tutelage of the law and was given to lead them to Christ in order that they might be justified by faith in him. But now that the new covenant has come and been fulfilled, we are invited to enter in. And so the church is no longer under the leadership of a tutor. So keep in mind what a a tutor was. He served a young person only for a time. Eventually they arrived at an age around 17 when the tutor was no longer needed or necessary. And in this way, we could say, when we enter into the new covenant, we, we graduate into a different way of life. We are mature men and women in Christ, free from the bondage of the Mosaic Covenant. 
And in this, I, I think it's valuable for us to think a moment about how it is that Christ has set us free from all that was required in the Old Covenant. Jesus Christ met and fulfilled every single demand of the Old Covenant so the tutor could be dismissed. Paul says it this way in Romans 6.14, you are not under the law, but under grace. The demand that God placed upon Adam in the covenant of works is fulfilled in Christ. What did God tell Adam? Do this and live. But only Christ has fulfilled what God has commanded that in him we might live by his righteousness because he has done it that we might live. He fulfilled all the moral demands of the Mosaic covenant and so he has fulfilled the covenant of works. He's obeyed it perfectly to earn life for his people. He submitted himself to the curse of the law and by his crucifixion he satisfied the judgment of God as our sacrifice. Jesus also fulfilled all of the ceremonial law. We've been delivered from all the particulars of the Mosaic ceremonial law, all of the really specific requirements that that govern the temple and the priesthood. And the Mosaic covenant contained judicial laws to govern the people, and Jesus was faithful to fulfill all of the civil requirements. What then is the Christian's responsibility to the moral law of God. And when we speak of that, we've proven already the last few weeks that we're speaking specifically of a summary in the Ten Commandments. The moral law of God, which was written on Adam's heart at creation, was restated in the Mosaic Covenant, and it remains the abiding statement of God's moral requirement for his people. The moral law teaches us how to express our love to God. It gives us a divine pattern for self-examination. It's a light. It's a a mirror for us to use. We still want to look to the moral law of God to continually plow us under that we remain on the low road of humility before God, constantly reminded of our great need for him, in his great love and his mercy toward us. And as Christians, as we we mature, as we take on the gospel, James is able to call the moral law the law of liberty. This This is the same law. How how do we move from slavery to liberty with the same law? Well, we're no longer in slavery. We're no longer in the bondage of the old covenant people having to keep the law to prove ourselves righteous, completely unable to do it, and yet still held in bondage to it. No, now it's the law of liberty because we serve God as freeborn sons and daughters empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's regenerated us. He's made us new creations. And the power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that works in us when we are in Christ. And so when we look to the law of God, it no longer holds us and beats us and grinds us to the dust. We look at it like David in the Psalms and we love it and we delight in it and we seek out of thankful obedience to the Lord to live according to it. Now, as those who are no longer under the old covenant, but have inherited the blessing of the new covenant, we can view the law and use the law rightly because we have been made, verse 26, sons of God through faith. Paul is pointing out to the Galatians that they're no longer enslaved to the law. Therefore, they're no longer sons of Adam. They're sons of God. The transfer's been made. Their adoption is complete. They're no longer held captive by the flesh. They're able to walk according to the Spirit. They're no longer hostile enemies of God. 
They're his friends. They're no longer aimlessly wandering around the world as orphans, but they are made sons and daughters. But here's the problem that Paul has been pointing out to the Galatians. While all of this is gloriously and marvelously true, they're still being bewitched by the devil through the false teaching of the Judaizers, and they aren't living as sons of God. They're living still like fatherless orphans. What about you, Christian? Do you live as a child of God, or are you locked into an orphan-like way of life? Lacking communion with God. What's the difference? An orphan lacks a vital daily intimacy with God. A child feels free of worry because of God's love for you. An orphan is anxious about relationships and money and school and work. A child is learning to live in daily partnership with God. An orphan feels as if no one cares about their life. A child is free from anxiety and crippling fear of God, even when days are dark. An orphan lives on the basis of success and failure. A child feels forgiven and totally accepted. An orphan needs to make sure that they look good in front of others in every way. A child has a daily trust in God's sovereign plan for their lives. An orphan feels guilty and condemned at every turn in life. A child's first response is prayer. An orphan struggles to trust God. A child is content in their relationships because they are accepted first and foremost by God. An orphan has to fix their problems and to do it all on their own, and to make it known. A child is free from making a name for themselves. An orphan is not teachable. A child longs for the opportunity to be taught by others. An orphan is defensive when accused of error or weakness. A child is open to criticism because... Perfection rests in Christ, the Redeemer. An orphan needs to be right. A child willingly admits when they're wrong. An orphan feels discouraged and defeated. A child is encouraged by the Spirit at work in them. An orphan is strong-willed with their ideas and agendas and opinions about everything. A child is able to see the goodness of God and his sovereignty in every situation. An orphan has a critical spirit, always grumbling and complaining. A child trusts less in themselves and more and more in the Holy Spirit. An orphan will tear others down, but a child is aware of their inability to fix life or others. An orphan is in a constant state of analysis of the weakness of others around them. A child is able to freely confess their faults to others. An orphan needs to be in control of every situation, but a child experiences more and more victory over the flesh. An orphan is motivated by the obligation to a duty. A child is motivated by love with a soul that is satisfied by God. Brothers and sisters, I could go on all day. But here's the question. As you hear these things, perhaps you're hearing the law of God and it is lashing you. And if you feel that way, you're living as an orphan enslaved to the law. But maybe you're living as a child of God. That's what God desires. That's what the gospel sets us free to do. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have been put have put on Christ. In other words, Paul is challenging the Galatians in the very same way that God is challenging each and every one of us this morning. If you've been baptized into Christ, live like it. Live in light of your baptism. Don't live as one enslaved to the law. You've been liberated. You've been raised from the dead. You've been set free. Why do you want to go back to Egypt? Stop living like an orphan. You have a heavenly father who has called you out of the darkness into the light and you have an elder brother who has died and been raised from the dead to give himself to you that you might live. So live in Christ, not by the law. Stop trying to breathe life back into that old man that was put to death. Every time we turn back to the law, we get on our knees before this dead, lifeless, rotting corpse, and we're trying to add air back into its lungs. We're giving mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to a man who's been dead since the moment you were saved. It's ugly. It's gross. But we breathe and we breathe and we breathe and we try to resuscitate. It's useless. It's madness. Stop trying to earn your place with God by the standard of the old covenant. You've been given all the riches. You've been given all the blessings. You've been given all the promises. You've been given all that stands in the new covenant with Christ. And if you're a Christian, you're not an orphan. You're a child of God. And the exhortation from God's word that Paul is pointing out is now go and live as a child of God. Last thing this morning, our final point, verses 28 and 29. Paul shows us that the people of God are one in Christ Jesus. Verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Very similar to what we know of in our world today, the world in Paul's day was very divided on many different levels. Racially, for example, the Gentiles were called dogs by the Jews, and the Gentiles didn't like the Jews anymore. Socially, the division between slaves and freemen was harsh and contentious at every turn. As for one's sex, women were generally despised. They were treated as second-class citizens. So this is the context in which Paul brings this section to a close. And here's how it fits. When we move out from under slavery to the law and we live instead as sons and daughters of God and we live as partakers of the new covenant, the gospel does something to us. Against the backdrop of all of these deep-seated divisions, we see the gospel come in and fundamentally change our relationships. So Jesus is not just for white middle-class suburbanites or poor Latinos or, or rich Middle Easterners, people of every race, of every social class. Men and women equally are invited to come and to partake of the Savior. And when they do, they're so fused into one another that it is as if those differences didn't even exist. Now, our skin may be a different color. Our accents may sound different. Our education levels may vary. Our bank accounts may not be similar, but those differences are what make the mosaic of God's church so beautiful. Yes, black men are still black men. Women are women. Chinese are Chinese and so on. But our in-Christness doesn't take those distinctions from us because those are the very ways in which God has so beautifully created us to display something of his love for his people of the world. The transformation that happens in the gospel addresses the sin and the snobbery and the hostility and the exploitation and the prejudice that casts such dark shadows over human relationships. 
So then in what sense are we one? Or to put it another way, how can we be so one in Christ that there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female? The answer to that is in Christ, we are all raised to the same high level of saving privilege. We are equally in Christ. We are equally the children of God. No one in Christ is a mere cousin or distant relative. Every believer is a son or a daughter. You are my brother or my sister. We are, verse 29, equally the children of Abraham. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, his spiritual offspring, independent of whether or not you are a Jew or a Gentile. We are equally heirs according to the promise. Abraham's spiritual seed were to have a spiritual inheritance an inheritance that includes justification, the gift of the Spirit, and the enjoyment of eternal life, regardless of race, regardless of social status, regardless of gender. And that inheritance is ours because we are believers in Jesus Christ. Just look around. Look at who's sitting next to you. In the eyes of the world, there is no reason whatsoever why the people sitting in this room together should have any reason to be sitting in a room together unless we're all in a courtroom waiting for a hearing or something like that, right? I mean, you're mostly hoodlums, don't lie. But we don't just sit in a room like this together once a week to be here. We love each other. Admit it, you love me. I know that's painful for some of you. I know you do, though. We give our lives to one another. We serve each other. We help in times of need. We open our homes. We give of our resources. Why? Because of what Christ has done in each of us through the power of the gospel. Do you know why my family and I live in Rinkin, Georgia? It's not because of a job. I think I could probably get a job somewhere out there in the world doing something. It's not the job. It's not the beautiful rolling hills because there aren't any. (laughs) It's not our proximity to the beach because that is more like a torture chamber than anything else. It's not a house. It's not a school district. It's not beautiful golf courses. You know, Rinkin was just voted the number one small town in Georgia to raise a young family based on a whole list of different criteria. But here's why Rinkin, Georgia is the number one small town in the world for the Kennecott family. Because of Ephesus Church. Because this is our family. Because God, in his great mercy and his infinite wisdom has brought all of us crazy, broken, messed up people together as one body. And instead of being divided because most of you have tattoos and some of us don't, or because some of us are incredibly good looking and others of you try really hard, or because of money, or because of race, or because of education, or because of job, or because of some other crazy reason you actually like eating boiled peanuts while the rest of us reasonable people have sophisticated palates, We are one in Christ Jesus. I can't tell you over the last eight years how many times we've been unexpectedly blessed by the people of God in this church. Our brothers and our sisters with whom we worship God who unites us all together by the blood of our Savior. And when you stop and think of the beauty of the unfathomable riches we have in Jesus Christ. It's overwhelming to be reminded that's only, this is only a foretaste of what's to come. This is only a little bit of what awaits us. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number 
from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You see, brothers and sisters, in light of what God has done to bring us together as the people of God to give us a foretaste of what we will have forever, we can see how terribly divisive it was that the Galatians fell to such false teaching. They were bewitched. They believed what they were being told. That as Gentile believers, they weren't good enough. They were a best cousin still outside the inner circle. But Paul says, no. No such division exists. We are, in the highest and greatest sense, one. And we must not permit that oneness to be divided in any way. We understand and we embrace and we love the reality as the children of God that we are children of God. And so may God be glorified as we, his, his sons and daughters, seek to honor him by continually seeing who we are in light of his law and turning to him together as one with absolute trust and faith and hope and love. Let's pray together. Father, you are exceedingly kind to us as your people. As you have revealed to us time and time again our brokenness, our sinfulness, our need for redemption, you have shown us time and time again that Jesus Christ is more than sufficient for all that we need. Father, as we recognize this morning our own failure, the very condemnation that some rest under this very hour, for those of us who've been set free from it, Father, and yet are still living as orphans, I pray that your word would bear down on their hearts and be a great reminder that we're sons and daughters of the King. We have all the privileges and all the rights. May we take full advantage of them. Not living as slaves to the law, not living enslaved to Satan, but living as a people who know that our inheritance is great because Christ has redeemed us and rescued us and is giving to us all things that you might be glorified and that we might taste eternally what we only taste a small piece of here and now. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. Give us a renewed desire to walk as your children, to live in light of being sons and daughters of God. We ask all of this in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen.